Transmitting the treasures of our Catholic faith to your radio every day. This is the Guadalupe Radio Network. Radio for your soul. Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. O oh my Jesus, forgive us of our sins, save us from the fires of hell, and lead all souls to heaven, especially those in most need of thy mercy. Our Lady of Guadalupe, pray for us. Saint Dominic Guzman, pray for us. Venerable Father Augustus Tolton, pray for us. Saint Alphonse of Indian, whose feast day it is today, pray for us. Saint Jamie Hillero. Barbal, whose feast day it is today, pray for us. And St. Pedro Poveda Castovera, whose feast day it is today, pray for us. So, we're talking today about liturgy as a form of worship. If you have ever called yourself attending Mass or going to Mass, I want to change your mind or give you cause to try to change someone else's mind about using uh, those type of phrases in regards to the Catholic liturgy. And I'm going to give you four reasons why you should. Later in the show, Timothy J. Gordon will be on to talk about his fascinating new book called The Case for the Patriarchy. We're going to be talking um, about the Christian patriarchy versus the feminist matriarchy. So that's going to be a fascinating conversation. Stay tuned in for that. Timothy will be in about 20 or so past the hour. But first, let me tell you how happy I am that you tuned in this afternoon. And I pray that you know that Jesus truly does love you, that he truly is there for you, and that he wants you to invite him into every aspect of your life, especially in those parts of your life where you don't think that you need him. My producer, my producer, Cecil, who you can see on the Guadalupe Radio Network show, Back to the Father, which airs on Friday afternoon. She is here today. So if you want to call in and opine when Timothy is here, I'm calling at 877-757-9424. That's 877-757-9424. And Sissa will get you on. And make sure you start every day, every morning, listening to the Catholic Drive Time Show with Joe McClain, Adrian Francesca, and Janelle Lee. Broadcasting on the Guadalupe Radio Network starting at 6 a.m. Central Time. This is the David L. Gray Show, voicing truth and reason on the Guadalupe Radio Network, which is radio for your soul. So there is a story being told in the highest levels of the Catholic Church that you have a moral obligation to inject yourself with a particular vaccine. There's two instances in the entire catechism of the Catholic Church that concerns some moral obligation that you do have. Those are the moral obligation we have to care for the earth for future generations. We'll have a healthy planet to come to. That's in paragraph 2486 of the catechism. And we also have a moral obligation, according to the church, to seek the truth, especially religious truth. That's paragraph 2467. Of the catechism, a moral obligation. Um, uh, what we have here clearly is two different words. The first word is moral, and it's related to 
morality or the moral act, the morality or the moral of the human act. And the key principle of which is that the ends of an act do not justify the means of the act. A good act is ordered to eternal life and an evil act is ordered to eternal damnation. And I know I just used about 15 words there to explain something that tomes have been written about, right? And with all due respect to moral theologians, which I'm not, morality is not that complicated of a theory. Now, being moral is where the difficulty lies because we're up against temptation and the wounded inclination, um, which can lead to immorality. Then there is the word obligation or imperative, which relates to the Christian duty. Morals are not subjective. What is moral for one person is also moral for the other. Similarly, what is an, an more in, um, immoral act for one is also an immoral act for another. Sin and virtue are not respecter of persons. The Ten Commandments were binding on all people. Yet, despite the fact that some people are just physically unable to accept the injection without health complications, and some people have religious obligations due to aborted baby fetal lines either used in the injection compounds or tested on, we are being told that it is a moral obligation to take the injection. Now, that's just not how morals work. That's not how duty works. And for the life of me, I really just can't figure out how we've gone from Jesus and the apostles healing sick people to now us depending on an injection, which does not actually heal the sickness. It's not my concern whether you take an injection or not. I'm not giving out medical advice here. All I want you to know is that you haven't committed some sort of mortal sin that you have to go confession to if you have grounds to not take the injection. Because we don't even know if it works or not. Remember over a year ago, we were being told to stay at home, wear a mask, social distance. And a little bit later, we were being told to wear two masks, get injected once, then twice. And now over a year later, we're again being told to wear a mask and social distance and get a booster injection. First, we were told that it was a choice and then we were being paid to get it. Then we were being enticed to get it. And then we we're being bullied and shamed to get it. And then we we're being told people come knock on our door. Now throughout the world, people who have not gotten it are being discriminated against and segregated. Even at the Catholic Mass, segregated sections of pews are popping up. Vaccinated here, unvaccinated there. If you want to receive on a tongue, go to the back of the line. Bishop Douglas Crosby of the American um, Hamilton um, um, Canadian Diocese, he informed his priests on July 20th that if they want to continue celebrating the Mass and all the other sacraments in healthcare facilities and schools, that they're required to get vaccinated. Gloria News is reporting that Father Pasquale Guardano of Bernalda, uh, the city of uh, Bernalda in southern Italy, he stated online, he said, I kindly ask that those who have no intention of having a swab or vaccination to refrain from coming to Mass. I don't know exactly what's going on with all this. I don't know the trajectory of it all or the final destination, the final end of this whole thing. But I do know that Christ is still King 
and the Blessed Mother, Mother Mary still hears our prayers. And we have to be prepared for our own end in this life every day. So be holy. This is the David L. Gray Show, voicing truth and reason on the Guadalupe Radio Network, which is radio for your soul. I, you know, I really don't have that many things <laughs> that get under my skin. You know, I really don't. But but the ones I do have, I am deadly serious about. I am. I, I, I have a handful of seemingly insignificant things that some people um, that that that. That I, I guess I'm so passionate about that I'm that person who people seem to be overly compelled to officiously ask me, "What is?" They said, "What is?" It? They said, "What is? Is that the hill you want to die on? <laughs> is that the hill you want to die on? Is that is that what you want to die on?" And I never really understood that question. I, I mean, because what's so wrong with dying on the hill? I mean, what's so wrong about dying on a hill? There are a million worse places to die on than a hill. <laughs> I mean, think of all the great battles that took place on a hill. I mean, no one fought, no one who fought at Bunker Hill during the American Revolution looked around <laughs> at that moment and said, you know what, guys, you know, this is not the hill I want to die on and pack up and left. No, no one on Bunker Hill did that. That seemed like a good hill to die on, right? No one turned around. In fact, uh, about 200 men died there and 800 were injured in battle on that hill. And good for them for having enough courage to be willing to die on that hill. If not, we wouldn't have America today. Another famous battle during the revolution that we really don't hear about that much was a battle that took place at Humberton, in Vermont. It was July 4th, July 1st, 19, I'm getting these days wrong. July 1st, 1777. And it lasted between three to five hours. The battle involved approximately 1200 American soldiers from Vermont, Massachusetts, and New Hampshire, um, uh, fighting against about 850 British troops in 180 German mercenaries or troops. And it all took place on the rolling hills of Humberton. We don't talk much about this battle because we didn't win it. It was really a, a tactical win for the Brits. But it was a hill worth dying on. Another great battle. I don't know how you feel about Vietnam or not. But it took place. Um, it, it took the United States Army 187th Regiment of the 101st Airborne Division 10 days to take Hamburger Hill, which is a great name for a hill you're going to die on. If you like burgers, right? Hamburger Hill, 10 days. 70 of those men died on that hill and Lord have mercy on their souls. Nothing is wrong with dying on a hill. I mean, I think people have this thing all wrong. We should all be looking for hills to die on. We should wake up every morning looking for like a, a fresh hill to die on, right? I mean, if you haven't died on at least one hill today, I, I really just don't think you, you you tried hard enough. Of course, the most famous battle in the history of the entire universe also took place on a hill. It was about circa 33 AD on Mount Calvary. We should really rename this the Battle of Calvary Hill. It's where Jesus destroyed sin and death. If Jesus died on a hill, 
then dying on a hill is good enough for me. Never run from death on a hill. Because if you don't die there, you'll learn something important by watching those who do. So, so, so this is one of my, my pet peeves. This is one of my pet peeves. Um, this is the one, this is the hill that I will die on day after day. So it really gets me when people who say I'm going to mass or say, I'm, I'm going to attend mass or I'm going, uh, I'm going to attend the traditional land mass or, or even say, I, I, I'm, I'm going to church I'm going to morning mass today. I'm going to attend morning mass I mean, as, as a mass, as, 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 as if mass is some sort of destination trip, like it's a noun or a place here. L- let me name just to help you. Let, let me name a few things that you can attend to that you can attend or, or some places where you can actually go to, you, you can attend a concert. You can attend a sporting event. You can attend a non-liturgical wedding, a non-liturgical funeral. You can attend a court hearing. You can attend a stage performance, a horror show, a movie, an execution, a wine tasting you can attend. You can even attend the birthing of your own child. There are many places where you can just casually go to. If you're not a good person or if you are a good person who not so good people don't like, you've probably been told, as I have (laughs) several times this week, exactly where you can go to. And I'm praying that you don't go there, but that's an option. Also, you can go to dinner. You can go to bed. You can go to brunch. You can go to work. You can go to a dentist, a doctor, and a gynecologist not long before you attend the birth of your own child. All these events have a start time and an end time. That's why we can go and attend them, right? On the contrary. No one can merely attend liturgy or the sacrifice of the mass. And I'm going to give you three reasons why, so that you can either change your own language about how you think or speak about the mass, or that you can help someone else in this regard. Here's the first reason. The first reason why you do not merely attend or casually go to the mass is because the sacrifice of the mass is liturgical worship par excellence. Liturgy is form. It is not only form, it is form of a work being rendered. And that work is worship. Liturgy is true worship, a worship that fully engages your entire created being, your entire mind, your entire body, and your entire soul. In a liturgy, is intentionally engaging you in this work through its rhythm of standing and sitting and kneeling, praying and confessing, and word and chant and song. The liturgy is divine choreography intending to bring you into a matrimonial dance of sorts with the divine. How can you merely attend something that is so vertical as the liturgy is? Through your activity of worship, of encountering God through your entire being, you are being elevated into the divine. The liturgy is not like popular Protestant praise celebrations, which may be rousing, 
but merely elevates your emotions and passions. It is not a Presbyterian sermon, which may be deeply intellectual, but only merely elevates your mind. It's not like Islamic prayer that, that merely engages your body into obedience. No, Catholic liturgy is bringing all of you, all that you are to all of God through your participation, because the God who created you without your cooperation will not save you without your cooperation. St. Augustine of Hippo. So you cannot merely attend or go to such a unique and exceptional thing as a Catholic mass, because it is not here for you to just watch or witness. It is here to make you divine. The second reason why you do not merely attend or casually go to the mass is because sacred space is foreign to such inactivity as classroom attendance or destination travel. Throughout history, human beings have always recognized that temples of other religions were not mere meeting places, but rather cultic spaces reserved to encounter the deity or deities. Whether that encounter was with a carved idol or in the synagogue of Jews, the shrine of the Torah, or with Catholics, the Holy Eucharist, sacred places are only there to orientate us to the divine. Such an idea is missed in the horizontalness I know of the Norris Ordo liturgy that many of us belong um, attend, attend, or tend to worship in. And in these modern church designs, but for all of uh, Christian history, at least until the last 50 years, all of our history um, of, of a people of God who sought to encounter God knew that we always worshiped in the direction of our source of revelation. The Jews faced Temple Mount, Muslims faced Mecca, pagans faced the natural thing they were worshiping, and Catholics were people of the Orient, meaning the East, because we were praying towards our source of revelation, Calvary. Our Romanesque and Gothic street cathedrals were, were designed truly to capture this truth, capturing the littleness of man and the otherness of God. We knew we were being called to ascend because the spaces um, that was birthed out of this awareness was that the divine presence is completely other in this sacred space. So we knew we had to ascend to him. That's why the church's buildings were so 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 um so high and far-reaching. People who attend things and have destinations to go to are always noisy because they always have something better to do afterwards and always have something more important to say. But people who worship are silent because they are encountering God in this sacred space. Imagine Imagine the Adoration Chapel in your mind. Silent encounter. Sacred spaces. No one who attends adoration. No one attends adoration. Rather, they come into the presence of him to adore him. You cannot attend adoration because adoration is an encounter. It's active. So the liturgy was designed in this way to be an encounter not a passive attendance or a mere destination.
The third reason why you cannot merely attend or um, casually go to the mass is because the liturgy is changing you. Who has ever attended a dressing room? You don't attend a just dressing room because, you know, a dressing room is an activity. You, you're, you're there changing whatever you're changing into. Even more so with the liturgy that intends to do with you what we see with the bread and wine. What was once dead, bread and wine, becomes truly living, the real presence of Christ in the world. And by consuming, we become the very person who we eat. Again, liturgy is active. Liturgy is encounter. It is taking all of you into all of God and God giving all of himself to all of you. It is no more possible to merely attend liturgy than it is for a human being to sit on the surface of a sun. Just as a sun would be changing you into burnt matter, the Son of God is changing you to bring you fully into his body by giving you his full body. Lastly, the fourth reason why you do not merely attend or casually go to Mass is because Jesus is truly there. If your relationship with God is so laid back and so un unintentional that you can say, yeah, I'm about to go see Jesus or I'm about to um, attend to Jesus, not judging you, but challenging you to um, transition from Jesus is your buddy who you frequently hang out with to Jesus being a God who you encounter, who is the source of everything. Of course, it's all about Jesus, right? I mean, let's just say it's all Jesus' fault, right? I mean, he's the one that made himself so accessible. I mean, he made baptism as easy as common water and comes to us in a form of staples like bread and wine. I get it. Jesus is there every day at the Mass, except for right, Good Friday. God is like the air we breathe. Very common and very easy to take for granted. So easy to take for granted that we wear shorts, sandals, and leggings to Mass. And if this is just where you are at on your journey right now, fine. I just want to challenge you to transition to something more intentional, to something called worship. It looks different. It feels different, might even smell different, but most importantly, it gives you access to grace in a way that is uncommon. Reject liturgical attendance. No one cares about how many people are attending mass. The only people who, who, who cares about who, who, who goes to mass or who attends mass are uh, accountants and people who pay the bills and fills their pockets with your offerings. But what God is doing through the liturgy is something different that demands not just your mere attendance, not all, but your real presence through the sacrifice of the mass so that he can give you his real presence through his real sacrifice. And that's all I know about that. But, um, you know what? You know, I, I was thinking more about the whole hill thing, right? The whole hill conversation. 
You know, you ever you remember when you were a kid and you you played um what was that game? King of the Hill. <laughs> I don't know if you I don't know if you you played that. It's called a game called King of the Hill. And so what happened here was that typically a boy, right? He would um find just just a random dirt pile and he would stand on top of the hill is and he would um get to the top of it and he would shout out king of the hill king of the hill and he would and then boys as far as like 200 yards away would hear that as some sort of clarion call some sort of clarion call and just run from great distances at speeds that you didn't know boys were capable of running. And they would challenge him to what he just, just on his own, or by his own authority, declared that he was king of the hill. So heretofore, um, the boys at the bottom of the hill who heard this clarion call did not know that they wanted to be king of the hill. I mean, we didn't know we wanted to be king of the hill. But because this boy said, hey, I'm the king of the hill. I mean, we wouldn't want to be king of the hill. It was like some sort of pride just sort of kicked in. Like, no, I want to be the hill. But what we were saying, right, that we were, this is a hill that we wanted to die on. I, I just think this is something naturally that maybe that just boys know. I think boys just want to just die on hills for some reason. Maybe just, just intrinsically just part of our nature. This dying on a hill sort of thing. And and really and these boys are really they weren't really armed with anything. They weren't armed with anything. Nothing but just the clothes their mother just put on their back. But all of a sudden they just wanted to be the king of this hill. And I, I think I was really good at this when I was a kid. Um that I, I you know I I, I think I always thought if I if I run at the hill at enough speed, right, and take the kid down that's on top, I too could be king of the hill. I mean, I was so good at this when I was a kid. Me and my me and my friends would be we'd be walking around. And I would just find just a random hill to stand on. I would say, king of the hill. And my friends would be like, yeah, yeah, we know, David. You're the king of the hill. You're the king of the hill. No one really wanted to challenge me, right? Because um, it's a hill worth dying on, right? I thought. They didn't think it. But, and, you know, and I was, I don't, you know, I think I told you this before, for a long time, I was the only black kid in my neighborhood, right? And I never thought it was racism that Jeremy said he was a king of the hill. And I, I never thought that I could not be the king of the hill because of my skin color. I just thought, again, if I, I run fast enough and I take him down, that I too could be a king. So King of the Hill sort of teaches you everything that you need to know in life, right? All at least the bad things, right? <laughs> you know, self-determination, picking yourself up by your bootstraps, taking what's not yours, denying free and fair elections. <laughs> it just teaches you all the bad things about life, right? So, yeah. Um, find a hill that you want to die on. So we're going to take a quick break right now and try to get Timothy J. Gordon on the line. And this is the David L. Gray show voicing truth and reason on the Guadalupe radio network.
I'll bet you know by now that Amazon Smile is a great way to support your favorite charity. And supporting the Guadalupe Radio Network while you shop is easy. Step one, just start off at smile.amazon.com. Step two, choose La Promesa Foundation as your charity. La Promesa Foundation is the parent company of Guadalupe Radio Network. And step three, enjoy your shopping. Amazon will donate a portion of your purchase to the La Promesa Foundation, and it doesn't cost you any extra. La Promesa Foundation and Guadalupe Radio Network, thank you. Looking for a Catholic university where the greatest works of Western and Catholic tradition are the foundation for learning, all in an environment that is faithful to the magisterium? Recommended by the Cardinal Newman Society, the University of Dallas offers an exceptional liberal arts education, preserving the wisdom of the past while preparing students for the world-changing futures. Academically excellent, always faithful. Apply today at udallas.edu. Keeping you informed and inspired. Hi, Joe McLean here, host of the Catholic Drive Time. Heard Monday through Friday, 6 a.m. Central, 7 Eastern, right here on the Guadalupe Radio Network. News and information, Catholic conversation, inspiration, fun, and prizes are involved. Log on to our website to get all the details, to find all the information, the podcast, the videos, and so much more. GRNonline.com. That's GRNonline.com forward slash CDT. God love you. Catholic Radio was there for me when I needed it. Even though I didn't think I needed it, it was there for me. I want everybody to know that I'm giving, not so that I can sit there and say that I gave to GRN for any other reason but this. I want that radio station to be there for anyone else who needs it also. They may not think they need it, but it's going to be there for them, whether it's in the future, whether it's right now. I want that radio station to always be there for them, just like it was there for me. The Guadalupe Radio Network. Radio for your soul. Hi, this is Len Oswald, president of the Guadalupe Radio Network, and I wanted you to meet two more GRN family members, Joseph and Jasmine. Joseph Schuler is the development director for WMET in Washington, D.C. He joined the GRN on May 7, 2019. Joseph and his wife, Lisa, have one son and one daughter. Joseph is a published editor and co-author of a book about the life of St. Manuel Gonzalez Garcia. Jasmine Bermudez joined the Guadalupe Radio Network on December 14, 2016 as a database assistant at the Guadalupe Resource Center. She lives in Midland, Texas, and has one daughter, Aubrey. Jasmine loves to watch her daughter play soccer. We are so very thankful to our GRN family for all they do to keep the Guadalupe Radio Network stations on the air. This has been your GRN Family Minute. We are your Catholic radio, radio for your soul. Welcome back in to the David L. Gray Show, voicing truth and reason on the Guadalupe Radio Network, which is radio for your soul. Timothy J. Gordon, who is the husband of one wife and father of a full basketball team with a bench, co-author of Rules for Retrogrades, author of Catholic Republic, Why America Will Perish Without Rome. Timothy J. Gordon studied philosophy in the Pontifical Graduate Universities in Europe, taught it at community college in in Southern California and went on to law school. Timothy holds degrees in literature, history, philosophy, and law, and currently resides in Mississippi. He is on the David O'Grey show today, voicing truth and reason to talk about his upcoming book, the case for patriarchy that will be released by Sophia Institute press 
on October 1st, 2001. But you can pre-order it now at the Sophia Press website. We'll put a link in the description in the um, comment box. If you want to talk with Timothy, speak with him, converse with him, opine about this topic, just call in at 877-757-9424. Timothy J. Gordon, welcome on to Voicing Truth and Reason. Thanks a million for having me, David. It's great to be on with you. Yeah, it's a pleasure to be speaking with you again. So, man, I'm so excited to start reading your book, and I really want other people <laughs> to get their hands on this. I really feel uh, that this is really going to be a powerful um, witness to what's going on in the world today. And I wanted to start off um, in the 30 minutes that we have. How does this book, people are familiar definitely with your rules for retrogrades. You have a whole podcast that, you know, revisits that topic. How does this book fit in in your, your body of work thus far, rules of retrogrades? And your book um, on uh, the uh, Catholic Republic. That's a good question, and I, I, I thank you for that good question, David. Because I've never been asked that on this speaking tour. I, th I think here's how it works: Catholic Republic shows that the two halves of the modernist coin are, you know, secular leftism that that hail from 17th century Enlightenment thought. And what we call religious right thought that comes from 16th century Protestantism and, and, and Catholic Republic specifically shows how both of those two halves of the coin in colonial America were really false flags because the ideology of America is Roman Catholicism. So America was a nation that's wired Catholic but labeled Protestant and currently functioning secular. So it's modernism, modernism, modernism. But I'm showing in and, – and of course in uh, Rules for Retrograde, which is like a, a rule book. It's 40 rules put together by my brother and I to combat Saul Alinsky's 13 Rules for Radicals. We're talking about how to combat tactically postmodernism. Uh, modernism led to okay. postmodernism. Anyway, so, so feminism, which is what I'm combating in the case for patriarchy, is – a lot of people are surprised to hear it. The primary tool, the primary communicator of postmodernism, everyone thinks you know, Marxism is mainly it, masonry we've talked about, uh, you know, all of the economic and social theories that set up homosexualism and transgenderism. Feminism undergirds all of these, including Marxism. And feminism, therefore, is... Interestingly enough, as you go through the history that I trace in the book, it is not only yeah. the original sin of Adam and Eve, but it seems to be the unfurling of the world. Uh, Sister Lucy of Fatima told Cardinal Kafaro that the final attack of Satan on the world would be that on the family. And it's very clear that she means the feminist attack, which destroyed the family. Sure, it's a form of proto-homosexualism and a proto-transgenderism, but more than these things, it's far more dangerous in its own right because it attacks every family, or 99 out of 100 families, whereas 1.5 out of every 100 people struggle with homosexuality or same-sex attraction, and 1 out of 500 or 1,000 have gender dysphoria. Virtually every family is now torn to shreds 
by the original sin in the garden of Adam and Eve of mm. feminism. So, so that's where it fits in. It's postmodernism to modernism. And contextualize this, because in your book you talk about these waves of feminism. What, what are these waves? How can we see them, and, and what were they? How many there are? Run us through that. Well, the, the standard account enumerates three waves of feminism. And the okay. standard conservative pushback, which is tepid, weak, effete, almost like controlled opposition, if you will, always attacks the second wave, which began around 1970, and the third wave, which began around 1992, as quote-unquote radical okay. feminism. This, like all other conservative tropes and other iterations of conservative push, quote-unquote pushback, uh, it's just wrong. This is why we lose, lose, lose. It's what conservatives and Christians do best in the cultural arena. We're losers, and the left is winners. It turns out the so-called first wave of feminism, which is traceable to 1848, specifically at the Seneca Falls Convention in upstate New York, it, it, was, it had all of the later developments of second and third wave feminism hardwired in not even softwired, but hardwired in, and, and have all of the noxious, family-destroying, female-hating tendencies of second- and third-wave feminism, such that, that I mean, here's, here's how it's played out. The tepid conservatives that say first-wave feminism was good, they reduce it just to uh, franchise you know, voting. And this is a, a misnomer. Okay. Well, right. if there's right. one third of the historical development that's good, then that means there is good feminism. Whereas when I attack it and I say no such thing as good feminism, no such thing as good first wave feminism, then I'm really pushing the account that Christianity requires a household patriarchy as well as a clerical patriarchy. And therefore, no iteration of feminism can be good. And that's, that's what you find mm. when you go through not only the history of feminism, but the, the history of salvation history. So can there be a matriarchy that's not associated with a feminist matriarchy? Is there, is there a healthy patriarchy and a healthy matriarchy? There's a, there's a healthy patriarchy. That's the way God hardwired nature, which is why Jesus chose a, an all-male presbyterate and episcopate. You know, that's the clerical patriarchy. And of course, there's a healthy uh, lay patriarchy, which is what JP2, Pope John Paul II, called the ecclesiola, the, the church in miniature, the household church, mm -hmm. which is each, yeah. each husband being the priest, prophet, king of each household. And nowadays, most people don't know it, so they're there is no such thing as any sort of patriarchy. What we've had supplanted by the cultural engineers and deciders who are Luciferians is something like a matriarchy, though it's so implausible. No one really buys into it because women are mm -hmm. so, so adversely geared, soft wired or hard wired for leadership and no one buys it. Um, so yes, <laughs> there's something of an attempted patriarchy, but it's, something of a joke you know i mean it's it's like a yeah like a like a female weightlifter just no one no one takes it seriously or a female ufc fighter this is what's running households every commercial is the same trope if it's a household product it's a, a wife rolling her eyes she's the quote-unquote boss <laughs> she's rolling her eyes at her husband yeah. 
Her husband's an idiot. He's either too fat or too skinny, and he's nothing like a leader. He's some eunuch or beta, and the wife is really in charge. This doesn't work out. It's led to the supposed, uh, and this is as reported by the left, David, the yeah. what they call the paradox of declining female happiness. They say since 1970, the advent of radical feminism, so-called, women get sadder and sadder every year, particularly working women in the suburbs. They can't figure it out. I don't call it a paradox. I call it a phenomenon. And according to this phenomenon, children are more depressed. Children are more alienated from their parents. Things like gender transphoria and homosexualism rates have risen along with suicide rates, out-of-wedlock birth rates, crime rates, everything. Mental mental health, so-called, is in decline. And it's all because of feminism it's not because of homosexualism or transgenderism it's because of feminism in the house yeah i want to dig deeper into that so we're talking speaking with timothy j gordon about his new book called the case for the patriarchy you can pre-order it now at sophia institute press just go to their website the official release of the book is october 1st of this year so a fascinating book um, Timothy is really going at really what he sees as the crux of um, a lot of societal issues. Many, probably he would say nearly all of them that we, that we face in society today. So I want to back up for a moment, um, Timothy, because you, you talked about how you touched on a little bit, a little bit of this talking about the all male priesthood, how that's essential Catholicism. Um, just briefly, can you talk about what is the patriarchy? Just as, just as a formal definition and, and why is it essential? Yeah, absolutely. Great question. Uh, defining terms is best. A hierarchy of men, a hierarchy with, with men at the top of the power structure, not necessarily the human dignity structure, if we make our metric dignitarian. Not that. Not, um, not our holiness structure. Even though men are solely and exclusively charged with bringing the gospel— not that, not, not greatness, not holiness, and not human dignity. Men and women are equal in those three measures, at least uh, in terms of those three measures submit themselves to what we call equal opportunity metrics. <laughs> but okay. power, in terms of, of power, hierarchy, and this is best proven by the fact that the greatest non-divine human being who ever walked the planet was a woman, a lady, who, who had a boss. Her boss was her husband, Joseph. And, and by the way, for being the greatest human ever, her greatest <laughs> virtue was fealty, obedience. She said amen, and she submitted herself to the patriarchy. As a woman, this is the greatest thing that one can do, and she's a far more important person than any man, including her boss, St. Joseph, who's probably the second greatest of all the saints. But the, the point is, we have submitted ourselves to Marxist power metrics, which measure uh, in some sort of Derridian or Foucauldian way, postmodern way, greatness is a function of power exercise. It's basically Nazism, except all of society under the cultural left has come to accept it you know you can't be great unless you're powerful you can't be great unless Mm -hmm. you're hyper educated you can't be great unless you're uh you can you're you're kicking down doors you can't be great unless you're hoisting people powerfully on your body which is why the cultural left lies and says that women can do all of these things 
in the same capacity as men or even at all. And they can't. Women's chance to be great is through the new Eve, Mary. An interesting example you do bring up in your book, Timothy. I was speaking with Timothy J. Gordon about his book, uh, The Case for the Patriarchy. And if you have a question for Timothy, or you want to opine on the subject or ask him something more detailed, please call in to 877-757-9424. That's 877-757-9424. David O'Grey Show, Voicing Truth and Reason. Yeah, and I wanted, I was, when you're talking about that subject in your book, um, about the idea that's, pressed in society that that women and men are equal in every way phys even physically use a story about a tennis match between i think it's kirsten um, brash and against venus and serena williams talk about that story and, and what we can learn from that match or those two matches well it's from about 20 years ago david and the story was played down in the press even though its implications mm -hmm ought to be sweeping in a society like ours where we've we've bought the lie that that females are really hardwired to be athletes or members of the military which are supposed to go together athletics and and, and membership in a military uh, it, it ought to be surprising if we had a half honest news media then this would be a major story but it was released and then quietly uh taken out of popular sports media you know espn and the like so the mm -hmm. 200 ranked male tennis player in the world from from around 2000 was named Carson Brown. I, I don't know much uh, about I don't know much about tennis. Is where's 200? Is 200 even? Is that even significant? I, I don't know much about it either. I don't care for the sport, <laughs> but I, I mean, I think it's insignificant enough to warrant um, the, the the Williams sisters, Venus and Serena, okay. they were watching the okay. men and they didn't, they didn't know Karsten Brosh by name. They just said, Hey, okay, we, okay. we've been looking around and we don't think, I, I think they thought they were being humble. They said, I don't think we can mm. beat any top hundred tennis players. I don't know if they knew who he was, <laughs> but they, they said, Hey, we kind of okay. calibrated this too. <laughs> we kind of, we kind of figured, by our sort of crude reasoning, rough and ready reasoning, that we could probably beat the 200th ranked male. And, and this, okay. you know, so I think they probably scanned through the tennis rankings, however it works in that sport. And they said, <laughs> this is this guy. You know, they pulled his, his number. They said, hey, Karsten Brash. The hilarious part of the story is uh, he, was, he wasn't even warmed up. And I don't know what you do to warm up in tennis, but I'd imagine it takes a half hour like any other sport. He, he said yeah, he yeah, drank a, a beer. Yeah. A little stretching, wow. yeah, yeah. At the at the very least, he said he drank a beer, smoked a cig, and then he played uh, Serena first, and he just said it was uh, it, the easiest match he ever played. Right? He he went up four zip, wow. and then he ended up winning six to one, which is in tennis this is a blowout. And right after he'd finished without stretching, while drinking a beer, and after smoking a cigarette. Uh, Venus ambles up, and she wanted a piece of the action. And he said without taking a break or anything, without warming up, in improper <laughs> conditions, he played her back-to-back. -back, and he said the game followed almost – he made it sound like it was – he also went up early and then ended up beating her 6-2. So she got another point on him. But the, the sisters afterwards said, yeah, he's number 200, but we, we've never had a ball returned with that speed. You know, we've never wow. seen that. This is, it's a different wow. kind of creature, a male. <laughs>
Right, right. And and I, I guess I guess most people would. I mean, this doesn't surprise most people, right? This this is seems to be what we we've we've known. Um, it's just about there's a difference between men and women in a number of essential ways. Yet the narrative are we. And I know you use, use a lot of footnotes in your book. And we're talking about we're talking about Timothy J. Gordon's book, The Case for the Patriarchy, wonderful book coming out October first, with uh, published by Saint um, Sophia Institute Press. And it's a, it's really footnoted. I mean, you can go and research and, and double check things and dig deeper with things. But Timothy, are you using just a caricature? I mean, is this is this really real? I mean, and we know what the media put, puts out, what Hollywood puts out. But is any is anyone really buying into this in, in society um, that uh, this this feminist matriarchy should be the ruling class, and that the patriarchy should be reduced to men living in in, in dog houses. Is is anyone really buying that? Is there any real data that suggests that that's really real, is, or this is just a Hollywood character? Absolutely, like any psychological operation, which is what this feminism matriarchism business is. It's a it's a psyop. It's a psychological operation. Hmm. We have the simultaneous phenomenon, seemingly contradictory, that A, everyone knows that it ain't true in the pit of their gut, but B, everyone goes along with it. That's how psyops work. That's how Luciferianism works. They, they work with these psyops. We're, we, we lived through an, an enormous one in the year 2020, and it doesn't appear like it's totally done. That's why hiding in plain sight works, which is how psychological operations always work. The CIA figured this out in the 40s and, and in the 30s when it wasn't even called the CIA yet. Uh, I, I forget what its shell organization name was first, but the point is it's, it's a simultaneous kind of paradox. The paradox that everyone knows this ain't true. Everyone knows, you know, women, women, aren't, women aren't good at sports. Men are good at sports, and, and not even all men. A subclass of men are athletes. And yet we're going to be told that they're good. We're going to be told that they're leaders, even though men are the leaders. The man is the, the leader of the household. We're going to be told often enough, you know, we, we, circulate, we have it circulated through news and entertainment media that, oh, the woman's really the boss. How many of her friends have said, oh, ask the boss, you know, when he's referring to his wife, if you're trying to make mm -hmm. a plan with him. Mm -hmm. That's how psychological mm -hmm. operations work. And, and, and the, mm -hmm. the ramification is, the end result is, that, yes, the foolish, I'm, I'm sorry to say, 75 or 80 percent, the masses, do end up believing it, even though it's implausible at best, if, okay. if, if not outright um, not feasible, that there's such a thing as uh, a matriarchy. And, and it, it plays out time and again, and it doesn't matter like any non-falsifiable position, which is the mark of a cult. Um, it, it plays out time and again where the counter evidence emerges, and yet it, it does nothing to dissuade anyone, anyone in that mem the membership of the 75 or 80 percent that will believe it as long as they're told it. Is. Take also other sports yeah. examples like, like when the U.S. women's soccer challenged again. They're the ones calling out boys 14 and under, <laughs> uh, a Dallas boys club team. They, they got clobbered by them 5-2 take the, the, the transsexual uh, who was really a man pretending to be a woman who fought in UFC and, and broke two different women's skulls. I mean, it's horrible. It's, it's, it's nothing to laugh at. Those women are the victims of first feminism because they're, they're encouraged to do a, an inherently male thing that's dangerous. 
and then later right. a development of feminism known as transgenderism. It's it's really really terrible. Yeah, and and Timothy, um, and I, you know I'm with you. I think I, I think I have enough evidence to know that a healthy society needs a healthy family, right? And needs a, a two parent home. And needs a mother and a father. And it needs the father to play the role of father, right? Um, and we, every problem in society we can look to, we see a lack of two-parent homes, um, which leads to a lack of good education, lack of um, morals and values. <laughs> and so it's, it's a cyclical issue that we see throughout society. Anytime society is failing, it's because the man isn't there. But that's the point. But that's I think that's the rub, though. I mean, I, I see what you're saying in your book, and I'm with you, and I'm with, uh, but when I look and I see, let me say this, let me preface this by saying, you know, I spent a lot of years in, you know, selling cars and time and time again, men will come in. Like you say, they, they can't make a decision to buy the car unless they speak to the boss, Timothy, there's a lot of weak men out here in that. Yeah. I mean, how do we expect for women to, let's say, uh, use a weird word, fall back and let these, let these these soft little effeminate men take the lead have who can't who are incapable of leadership. So incapable of leadership that they're letting these women, these biological men replace women. So how, how are women expected to not be the feminist matriarchy and, and rule the house? Well, it's a good question. And there's feminism does not just mean adverse action by females. It means adverse, um, omission to act by males and mm. nature de despising a vacuum the females rush in and and fill the void think of adam and eve he should have been the one interfacing with mm. the serpent uh, all of the early patristic fathers augustine ambrose jerome saint john chrysostom they all say that if the serpent would have interacted with adam not eve because he's the the leader and he's the one that's the shrewder dealing with outsiders to the family then we would not have had the original sin and they all say eve sinned first there's a reason why it's it's feminism even though they didn't use the f word feminism so so the point <laughs> of, of my prefacing my answer that way is is that uh yeah is that uh there there is action by males we have this social phenomenon where um, the first rule of feminism is never blame a female for anything always find a male flaw behind every mm. even female misbehavior. So I'm not doing that. Okay. I, I, I'm fine saying, look, feminism has created a generation or two of mouthy, misbehaving, mannish females who think they're more competent than their husbands, but aren't. They're, they're actually not. So the answer to your question is that really, even, even if you're, you know, as a, as a salesman, you interacted with a lot of men that are incapable of being decisive. Well, the wives might come in and show false bravado, which which is masquerading as decisiveness. But it's really not. It, mm. it doesn't. Decisiveness, yeah. in order for it to be a virtue, you have to come up not just with the answer quick. You got to come up with the right answer quick, and that's not All something right. that that wives are capable of of doing on a basis uh, on a regular basis. And that doesn't mean that they've never come up with the right answer, and it doesn't mean that single moms can't. You know, if their if their husband passes away, can't sort of cope, but it does insinuate something directly about nature and about men and women. Our roles are not fungible; they're not fungible. We can't just by consent agree to swap places. And if if you begin to believe that men and women can believe to begin to swap places, 
then all you have to do is translate that proposition to the bedroom, and then you have homosexualism, right? That's all homosexualism mm-hmm. is. And then if you believe it on, you know, one notch further on the ontological spectrum, then you're just believing that a man can be a woman if he can act like one, and then you have transgenderism. Yeah. So the point is, the exactly. point is that, the, the point is that it's a good point. We've got two or three generations now after second wave feminism of men that have bought into the psyop. So they, they have really weak muscles. They haven't begun yeah. working out. So if, if you throw yeah. a, a man who hasn't worked out in the weight room, he's going to be able to bench press the bar only or something. But, but give him a few weeks, you know, I mean, give, give it one generation to turn this around. Right. Two millennia of Christian teaching and nature also, even before Jesus came to earth, just nature teaches with one voice. Yeah. Men are the leaders. Women are the followers. The best female saints are followers. The best male saints are leaders. Let's get back to that. We can do it in a generation. All right, man. That sounds really good. So speaking of Timmy Gorman, wrapping up here, got about 20 seconds left. Thank you for so much for coming on to the J. Gore. Hope we can get you back on here right before your book releases. But again, we're talking about the case for the patriarchy by Timothy J. Gordon. You can get it now. Pre-order at Sophia Institute Press. Thanks for coming on, Timothy. Thanks a million. Always great to hear you, David. Thank you for tuning in. I'll be back same time next week, same place. And I look forward to conversing with you again. In between time, you can visit me at davidlgray.info. But until then, and until next time, remember that Jesus loves you and is there for you. And live your life like salvation matters. And may the abundance of our Lord's blessings and graces and favors fall upon you. Thank you.